Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from October of 2018 on community and citizen science. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. I want to welcome everyone here. I'm really excited to let you know that this is the start of our 12th year of science cafes. And Kira has curated all of them. So shout out to Kira. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so for, I'd like to start by thanking Connor O'Neill's for uh, making this space available to us. And in case anyone doesn't know, the, uh, these events are organized by the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History. And um, we are currently closed while we are preparing to move into our new building, which is called the Biological Sciences Building. In fact, most of our staff has moved over and we have started installing our exhibits. We'll be opening to the public in April. And then we have a secondary uh, set of exhibits opening in November, a year from now. So there's a lot to look forward to and we hope all of you will come out and, and join us in the excitement and to see it. And now I will turn things over to Kira, and she'll explain how the program works tonight. Thank you. So tonight's uh, topic is citizen science. You're the scientist now. Um, and this is something I've been working very hard on uh, promoting uh, as part of the museum's work. And I realize that there are so many people at the University of Michigan who are doing or are interested or are knowledgeable about citizen science that I wanted to bring them together for a science cafe. So I hope it is as exciting as I think it is. Um, but we'll, we will see, I've got some great folks. Um, uh, one thing, if you're not familiar with the format, each of our speakers will do about seven to 10 minutes uh, introduction to uh, their perspective and their work. And then we will have time for discussion at your tables. And then at the end, we'll have a large group discussion, which I will moderate. 12 years ago when I started doing this, I didn't have reading glasses, so. <laughs> Things change. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our speakers uh, in the order that they'll speak. Um, and so the first person who We'll be talking is Justin Shell. He's the director. Here's Justin. Um, he's the director of the Shapiro Design Lab, which is a peer learning and project design community at the University of Michigan Library. He's past managing editor of Citizen Science Today and co-chair of the Citizen Science Association's Data and Metadata Working Group. And before um, before moving to Michigan, he was a filmmaker and count and Council on Library and Information Resources postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota Library. And he's right now leading the U of M Citizen and Community Science Project Incubator and Fellows Program, along with the museum is also sponsoring that. So um, please welcome Justin. And, and I'm gonna go ahead and uh, introduce everybody now and then let them go let them at the microphone um, so uh, the second person who we'll be hearing from is Marty Kaufman um, 
Marty is the David M. French Professor of Earth Science at the University of Michigan Flint. His research focuses on environmental risk assessment, water infrastructure, groundwater contamination, geographic information systems, and science-based planning methods. In addition to many academic publications, Marty is the author of A Critical Thinker's Guide to the Environment and the co-author of Urban Watersheds, Geology, Contamination, and Sustainability. His research has included brownfield re redevelopment, stormwater management, and the risks to children from hazardous materials at home. Recently, he led the mapping efforts to, identif and to identify the lead pipes in Flint, Michigan. Yay. Thank you. To say, um, we don't see a lot of faculty at our science cafes from our other campuses, so I'm really pleased that we have some folks with us today. Um, the third person who will be talking is Natalie Sampson, and she's assistant professor, hi Natalie, um, assistant professor at, in the College of Health and Human Services at U of M Dearborn. Um, she conducts community-based research to document and address environmental health inequities. She brings interdisciplinary evidence to climate change, land use, infrastructure planning, and policy efforts in Metro Detroit. She co-chairs the American Public Health Association's Environmental Justice Subcommittee and was the 2017 recipient of the APHA Rebecca Head Award honoring, quote, an outstanding emerging leader from the environmental health field working at the nexus of science, policy, and environmental justice. Yay. Um, speaking fourth is Naima Harris, um, who is assistant professor in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department uh, at the U of M Ann Arbor. Um, and um, the principal focus of her applied wildlife ecology, or AWE, lab, <laughs> is to investigate the biogeography and conservation of antagonistic interactions. Um, so she and her students study predator-prey competition, host-parasite interactions in mammals, and specifically in carnivores. Um, and she has active pro projects in North America and Africa, and she aims to do science that has conservation and societal relevance and celebrates the awe of nature. She founded Michigan Zoom In, which is a project that allows the public to help analyze and identify photos of mammals from the U of, M, U of M's biostation. So please welcome Naima Harris. All right. Yay, I'm going to pass the mic to Justin. Thank you, Kira. And thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, as Kira mentioned, I'm Justin Schell from the Shapiro Design Lab over at the U of M Library. Um, if anybody was at the Science Cafe around Data Rescue, we did that there, too. So any regulars might recognize me. Um, I'm going to give a few uh, sort of remarks about sort of citizen and community science more broadly. And then my three friends and colleagues are going to talk about some more specific areas and projects around this. So when we talk about citizen science or community science, as other people will call it, for various reasons that I think we can get into, um, both within the presentations and in the discussions later, um, at its broadest, it means public participation in the scientific process. So people who aren't considered, quote unquote, scientists um, have real contributions and real benefits from this. That could be um, going out and uh, noting down what birds you see in specific areas, and then submitting that to a platform called eBird, 
that then aggregates all of these bird observations around the country and around the world to better understand bird migration patterns. Or it could be using uh, a community microscope kit from the public lab, which uses low-cost tools uh, for community science and specifically environmental justice questions. Um, and so these, they make these kits that are you know, between $20 and $50 um, that people can use to address some of the questions facing their own communities. Um, it's also you know, with projects like Zooniverse, like you'll hear, um, where um, you can go through and help identify images of animals or you know, penguins or uh, you know, looking, at, um, the next, looking for the next Higgs boson particle and things like that in these sort of micro-task contribution environments. And in something like the data rescue, it's actually making sure that this science is available um, for the long term, whatever the long term is. Um, you know, in library land, we say forever or 10 years, which comes first. Um, and so being able to um, make sure that this is accessible and available for people in the future. And um, some people, uh, especially in sort of the community science field, um, will go for that term over sort of citizen science, often because of other connotations of citizenship, especially if you're working with more recent immigrant communities. Um, and, but also the sort of community science has a much more localized focus in, the pro in that specific community and the problems that they're facing. And so you could see uh, this closely aligned with questions of environmental justice as Natalie will talk about, or in the Flint Water Study work where uh, the communities up there worked with Mark Edwards to um, develop these testing protocols and things like that. Now, a lot has happened since then, uh, which we can talk about as well. Um, so, uh, you know, Mark Edwards' work is both a really good and a really bad example of how you work with a community. Um, but all of these kind of things um, fall under this idea of citizen and community science. And it's something that, you know, everyone here can participate in in some way. Um, and all of this is, and I think we'll, people will talk about this, sort of the contrast with quote unquote traditional science done by quote unquote experts and things like that. Um, and as much as you know, we want to open this up and open this kind of research up and open this kind of participation, um, there still are a lot of stakes to this work and making sure that the data is collected in a good and responsible way, it can be used, it can be trusted, especially if uh, these projects are looking to make some sort of policy intervention and that these, thing, these things can be trusted. Um, and so be, with all of the, these kinds of projects and these kinds of initiatives, um, there is this, you know, this dynamic of even though you know, you're the scientist now, it doesn't mean that you, know, you don't need scientists who have professional training and things like that. It's much more of a collaboration between these, these groups. Um, oftentimes because you know, a scientist may not have the, you know, the time or the number of graduate students to complete this work, or there's a lot of, of sort of geographic coverage that they're looking at, the scales are much wider, um, but that at the same time, the public will receive some benefit for this. So usually the data is open, the publications are open, people are cited on the, on, uh, for their contributions and things like that. Um, so from this sort of very broad perspective, um, there are so many different ways that people can get involved. Um, and you know, from, as I mentioned, you know, wildlife, environmental monitoring, computers, playing games, there's games to help Alzheimer's research, um, and things like that online. 
Um, so being able to, you know, find different ways to participate. There's all these different kinds of ways. So whatever you might be interested in or you might have background expertise in, um, there's a way to get involved. And so I'm going to hand it over uh, to my colleagues now to talk about some more of the specific areas and projects that they've worked in. And I look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say later on. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Thanks to the uh, Museum of Natural History for inviting me. Uh, I'd like to start out by saying Earth was a really good place before we got here. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, that really things didn't really start getting bad until humans started mucking things up. So, but there's some instruction here in terms of the way we interact with the natural world that, that gives us some insights into how we can promote and expand citizen science. So these natural systems on Earth, like the hydrologic cycle, the ecological cycle, the tech, plate tectonics, what we might call the great systems of Earth, were all around before we got here. And what we tried to do when we got here was mimic them as best we could. But we don't, we're not always perfect in doing so. So we build, let's say, a pipe to drain water from the street, and we try to follow the, the lay of the land so the water will flow downhill, and, you know, so there's some slope to the pipe. And it tries to mimic the way nature drains the landscape. But you know, in doing so, we, it doesn't always work, because sometimes we have turns in the road, and other times we have um, obstacles, and we have to go different places. So what ends up happening is that humans put more energy into the environment and at specific locations than the natural systems can handle. And when that happens, they go out of whack. And when systems go out of whack, they have to adjust themselves through, through something we call feedback. There's positive feedback, which actually typically is, has a negative outcome, and then there's negative feedback. And positive feedback occurs when a, a process within a system speeds up the system itself. So what I tell my students is that you study, you, I'm going to give you a test and you're going to get an ulcer. And then you're going to worry about it and your ulcer will get worse. And then you worry about it more. And that's the, a positive feedback loop, but it has a negative consequence. Negative feedback is like your sweating mechanism in your body. It returns your body temperature to 98.6. When your sweating mechanism is broken, things, your system goes out of whack. So negative feedback tends to have a damping effect on systems and bring them back into equilibrium. And this is where citizen science comes in, because we can, by understanding these natural systems, what we can do is what we can work to bring our systems back into whack. So let's just give you an example. We have a lot of urban flooding that's occurring that, that started to occur really with this post-World War II suburbanization in the United States. And you start looking at the press clippings from you know, post-World War II and the suburbanization and building all these large shopping malls and a lot of impervious surface. And what happened was is that where these places were built, there was very small streams in the areas we call the headwaters of a watershed. And as a result, all this runoff was inundating all these small streams, which couldn't handle all this excess water. So what we've 
thought of doing was building ponds to hold some of the water. And if you go around the subdivisions around the country, you can see little detention ponds that were built to hold back some of this water. But what we're finding is that these ponds are a pain in the neck. That's a scientific term. And a better way would be to keep water on site, meaning harvest the water. And there might be a way for people to cut their water bills. You know, two-thirds of, of your water bill is devoted to flushing your toilet and watering your lawn. And water bills are expensive now. I mean, some of my students told me they're paying at their house almost $1,000 a year for water. It's a lot of money. So it would be nice if you can cut into that with some water harvesting. So let's construct a little experiment. Typically, what, the way a classical scientist would design this experiment would be that they would pick 30 homes where they would put a cistern. And you know, in Western Ann Arbor on the west side, some of the homes have cisterns to collect rainwater. And then 30 homes would be used as what we call a control. They wouldn't have a cistern. And then what we do is that we would compare, and there'd be some minor plumbing changes put in so the people who had the cisterns, the water storage devices, could use some of that water to flush their toilet and also to water their lawn. And then we'd, we'd make measurements. Measurement is always part of good science. And we'd compare and see if the cisterns made a significant dent in the water bill over time. Now, if we add, that's the classical science approach, where you have, you're imposing a treatment on a subject group and then watching the change and comparing it to a group you're not doing anything with. You're holding them constant. Now, let's bring in a, a third group where we take citizens, where we have citizens who maybe work with an architect or an engineer to design their own water system. And then we add them to the mix as well. We might learn some things from that. Because typically when we design experiments, we rigidly control all the try to control all the variables. So the cisterns that were put in would be built only one way. But maybe with a design, you know, some leeway with the designers and, and the citizens, we might find better ways to construct the, the conveyance mechanisms. So that just gives you an example of how citizen science can, can help. All right. Our next speaker. Sorry, Kara. You're appetizing and I want slides. <laughs> Thank you to the museum and um, also Justin. I've learned over recent years that librarians are some of our best friends and we should all uh, make friends with librarians. So I'm going to talk today really briefly. <laughs> yay, librarians, if there's others in the room, um, about environmental justice in Dearborn. Um, so for those of you that don't know what environmental justice is, the EPA defines it as the fair and meaningful involvement of all persons of different origins, of different colors, of different incomes in um, environmental regulation, implementation policy. But it's larger than that. It's a social justice movement. Um, if you want to look up the 1991 People of Color Summit where they defined EJ, that's where I'd go. I'm going to talk a little bit about a project, though, that brings this together with citizen science. Citizen science lends itself well to EJ because a lot of times EJ is about trying to document what's going on in your community when maybe agencies aren't, when there's a gap in the data, information you might need to advocate for yourself. So we're going to take ourselves down the road to Dearborn. Um, so some of you might be well aware of some of where of our top polluting facilities are in southeast Michigan, lingering in Metro Detroit. 
Um, so if you see around the 1415, if you can see that far, you'll see Dearborn where we have AK Steel, we have the Ford Rouge plant. Um, we also have Edward Levy, which is a slag facility, which takes byproduct of steel, right? These were particularly put together, co-located for a very good reason economically. Many of us have benefited from this with jobs or our vehicles, but as you can imagine, it creates an environmental justice burden for those people living in that community. So if you wanna go to the next slide. And this, you can't really see it too well, but um, I wanna point out that there's not a whole lot of monitoring that happens. There's one monitor station in Dearborn, but in Dearborn, I want you to keep in mind the asthma rate is twice that of the state, about 47%, or I'm sorry, this is in the south end of Dearborn, which is by all those facilities in a couple of census tracts, twice that of the state, um, about 47% of that population are children, so half of the population, about 80% um, are not English native speakers or don't speak any English at all. Um, and so trying to understand what's going on in your environment and being exposed to environmental toxins um, is really important to people living in this community. So one air monitor is really important, but probably figuring out what's going on in your soil in downwind or in different parts of that community is also really important. So um, if you wanna go ahead to the next slide. So to humanize this a little bit, I wanted to throw up a picture. In the center there, you'll see Salina Elementary School. And then behind that, you'll see some of the facilities I just mentioned. And over to the left is Salina Intermediate School. Um, so children go to school here. They're actually just, it's not in this picture, but they just got a grant from the Michigan Endowment uh, Health Fund to build a garden next to the school, which concerns me a little bit about might, might be in that soil, in the air, but um, I think they're trying to, to do some remediation, mitigation, preventative measures to, to deal with some of that. But just to kind of keep in mind, um, how close residents are to some of the industry. So, um, And so some of the so what and the why and why engage youth, um, there's expansion of this industry. There's expansion of these environmental justice issues. So the picture on the right is a hearing that was held in January for the Detroit or the Dearborn Industrial Generator um, that was looking to increase a th by 1,000 pounds of pollution each year. Um, and there was an incredible turnout in the room the, the dig, as it's called, actually pulled its permit because they were so um, surprised, I think. And, and so MDEQ was about to give them this permit and they um, are no longer expanding currently. Um, but there were some concerns of residents. A lot of folks didn't know what was going on. They didn't anticipate this. There was no Arabic translation in the room, um, which was highly problematic. So a lot of our community partners have been talking about how do we engage the youth in understanding this and monitoring their own environmental health issues. So. Um, so we put together this summer what's called the Environmental Health Research to Action, or ERA, Youth, um, Youth Academy. Um, and so this was really driven by a lot of community partners who I'll show you who they are at the end of the project. And this was something I actually sought out Justin to think through a little bit and some other people in this room who've been doing this work for a long time in the community. So day one, the students took a tour of the area. They learned on day two about environmental health, environmental air quality monitoring. Um, they did a little bit on environmental health literacy. So how do we communicate these issues in plain language? How do we do policy advocacy and make specific asks once we have some of this information and data in hand? How do we go out? Justin came on day five with handheld monitors and see what's going on for ourselves. And then they had a closing ceremony where they presented. So we can go to the next few images. So um, we use what's called an air beam. Um, Justin actually recommended this and the Shapiro Design Lab at U of M has these and we had some funds to purchase some for the students. So they were able to go um, where we were located in southeast um, 
or in the south end of Dearborn is a highly truck traffic route. Um, so they were able to kind of see what happens when you go on Michigan Avenue or when you go down the street in the neighborhood and see peak levels of particulate matter and get a little bit of experience with that. You can go to the next picture. So Justin kind of showed them what the data looks like when it pops up on your phone. Um, they quickly caught on. I think it, that was what was the most exciting to me because this was the first time I was using these tools as well. Um, I'm more of a social scientist, so I'm, I'm not necessarily familiar with all of this data. And so it was really user friendly, which was really exciting. So what's also really exciting is that they were inspired by this data then to come up with a policy advocacy strategy to figure out what do we ask of Michigan Department of Environmental Quality or our city council or the industry here um, and strategize. They also created infographics and fact sheets and presentations. One of the groups wants to present to city council and Dearborn on some of this information. So. We learned a lot. In closing, I'll just say um, the group wanted more citizen science. They wanted more um, time to use those handheld monitors. They want to also be able to track other things going on. So I'll probably be tapping Justin and others to figure out how to do that. They want to look at what's going on in their soil. There's concerns about manganese and arsenic coming from the slag facility that I mentioned. Um, so more work is to be done, but they really wanted to get involved in collecting the data themselves. So the last slide is just pictures of all of our partners I want to recognize and our funders. Thank you. Okay, my turn. One more, one more speaker before we have broader conversations. I want to thank the museum. I want to thank you guys for being here. Very exciting um, to share some of the work that I'm doing um, with some pretty awesome students in my lab. Um, there are two concepts that I want you to remember from what I share with you today. The first concept is enthusiasm, and the second concept is exposure. So people often tell me that I do not look like a wildlife biologist. Not sure what a wildlife biologist is supposed to look like, but I am she. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, and yay, Philly in the house. Um, and I was not exposed to Rocky Mountain West and elk bugles or camping and fishing with my family. That was not my childhood at all. Instead, I was pouring salt on slugs and being all amazed by the fact that they did not like salt. I was giving my dog creamy versus chunky peanut butter to see which one it liked better. I was using jars to catch fireflies. That was my childhood. That was my natural history exposure. I was enthusiastic about the natural system. I did not know how that translated into a career or profession, despite the fact that my mom was a high school biology teacher. So she told me I could be a veterinarian or I could be a zookeeper. And my brother said, well, do you want to shovel shit for the rest of your life. And so I said, okay, fine. I guess I'm gonna go the vet route. Um, but that wasn't what I was passionate about. So fast forwarding 20 years later, now as a professor, one thing that still keeps me grounded is enthusiasm and exposure. So I have been committed to making sure that students in my lab are jazzed about the science that they're doing, right? They're not gonna get through the grueling five-year or six-year PhD program if they're not excited about it. And in the process, I would argue that we have 
a responsibility to make sure that we are broadly disseminating the work that we're doing, that we can plant seeds, that we can stimulate ideas, that we can get other people jazzed across demography, across geography, about the work that we're doing and why wildlife, natural systems, are relevant and important for what we're doing. Okay, so that is an introduction to one of the research projects <laughs> in my lab where we are surveying the wildlife community across the state of Michigan. As mentioned in the video, we have four sites that are involved in our research project from the UP down to the city of Detroit, where we are putting out literally hundreds of remote cameras. I have a remote camera here to show you. Often people ask which cameras we use, so you can come and check that out at some point. Um, but in doing so, we gather hundreds of thousands of images. And it's a lot of data and a lot of information. Even for my awesome lab, we need help. So working with Justin at the Shapiro Design Lab, he helped us to create a project on a platform called Zooniverse that allows us to literally crowdsource. We go to the public and we ask for help. We put all of our images across those sites on the website. Our website project is called Michigan Zoom In. And the public can go to the website and help us identify what's in our images. Sometimes we get really cool pictures. Um, other times we get uh, not so cool pictures, as in a leaf or a twig or something that blows by. But needless to say, we are getting lots of information, but we couldn't do it without the help of the public. And so right now, the site is um, temporarily, <laughs> while we are uploading more images, um, People can go to the website. So far, we have about three, actually close to 4,000 volunteers now that's helping us with the identification. So check out the website in a couple of weeks when we will be launching our season three and have images from Detroit that are in there, um, for again, for people to help with identifications. We've also integrated the platform into educational programs. So we have a number of partners in Detroit and other places that have uh, K through 12 lesson plans that they rely on our website to facilitate conversations and training with young people, which is also great. And the last thing I want to show you, the last tab, please. So we are very excited. Um, I didn't become a wildlife biologist necessarily because I thought I was gonna work in a city. Um, but Detroit has been a really interesting addition to the research that we're doing. So this is an example of the 25 parks that we have surveyed across, this, across the city of Detroit. So 26 parks, all those little dots are places that we had cameras last year. We are currently deploying cameras again to survey in the city of Detroit. Now, going back to this idea of enthusiasm and exposure, public science, there's lots of different ways and lots of different stages that the public can be involved in doing work or doing science or doing research. In our case, I have integrated the public or broader participation at three different stages. The first is when we were conceptualizing the project. 
For example, we did a stakeholder meeting in Detroit. Number of partners, number of audiences came together to tell us what they were interested in, in terms of thinking about wildlife research, community interactions, et cetera. So we wanted to hear from the public, from a broader audience, in designing the work. So that's at the front end. Michigan Zoom In represents another stage where the public is helping us with processing the data from all of the camera images. The third stage or aspect that pub the public is involved is actually going out with us in setting the cameras. So if any volunteers are in the audience, we are going out Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to deploy cameras in Detroit. So again, getting the public to be involved in the work, not just in one stage. So we have facilitated a number of opportunities where we're able to engage and connect and hopefully inspire um, plant seeds, make people enthusiastic about the work that we're doing and wildlife research in general. Last thing I'll say, I have to give a shout out because my lab is in the audience. So can you guys raise your hand if you're part of the all lab? Yay, thanks guys. Thank you. And um, just say that at this point, we're going to break up into small conversations. There are actually discussion questions on your table so, uh, provided by uh, some of our speakers. And the speakers will uh, go around the room and, and talk to you. Um, be, before we break, I just want to say that there are some exciting directions that the museum is going in citizen science, too. We're working on an exhibit kiosk that will highlight citizen science projects done by U of M faculty. And with Justin's help in our project incubator, we'll have more and more uh, projects to highlight. Uh, and we're also working with the Ann Arbor District Library, hopefully, to be able to check out uh, tools and kits so that uh, you can take part in those projects. Um, more on that later, but I want you to think broadly about the directions that citizen and community community science could take us in terms of the way that we generate knowledge. And I'll leave it there. So we'll come back together for a group discussion in a little bit. Uh, so we're going to try to come back together and have a group conversation. Um, my hope is that it won't be just question and answer, but that you will have some experiences that you want to share with this group and ask questions about. Um, or some thoughts about the direction of citizen and community science uh, that we can all discuss. Um, so I will be moderating. Um, and so I'll let uh, speakers know when you have the floor and when you don't. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to, uh, Sarah, who's standing right here, is one of our, our wonderful docents at the museum, and I will be passing this cordless mic that I'm holding. Um, please use it to enable those with hearing impairments to hear, and so that we can record your wonderful conversation for later podcasts. Um, please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak. Even though these guys are my honored guests, I'll be passing the mic around, So or Sarah. Um, uh, likewise, we'll try to give preference uh, to people who haven't spoken yet, just so that lots of people get to talk. 
And um, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate. And sometimes we have controversial topics. Today, maybe not so much, but you never know. So please be nice to each other or else. Um, um, also, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you have to try to run a citizen science uh, project all by yourself without help from Justin. Good luck with that. Um, please turn off your phone. Um, I think that. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, does anybody want to jump in? So, one of the things you use citizen scientists for is gathering data. How do you assure the robustness of that data when it's gathered by people who aren't well trained? So in the case of our project on Michigan Zoom In, where we're asking the public to identify images, and some of our images, of course, have wildlife that are unfamiliar. Perhaps people have never seen a badger before um, or have difficulties telling a gray fox from a coyote. And so in our case, <laughs> in our case, we asked for 15 different users, 15 different people to classify that image. So if 15 people tell me it's a deer, I'm going to believe and trust that everyone knows what a deer looks like. And so in our case, we have this multiple user response that we can aggregate the data in order for us to validate it. Gather data. Yeah. So an example of it is, but the the data has already been gathered. I think for what you're talking about. These are images that are being classified. So an example, I think, of what you're talking about is an application called iNaturalist, which you can use on a smartphone or on a computer. And this is where you are walking around and you see a bunny. You're like, ooh, take a picture of bunny and upload it. And it's like tag it as bunny. Um, that doesn't scientific term. Uh, that. Um, that doesn't automatically go into these large research surveys um, as you know, bunny. Um, multiple people have to uh, sort of corroborate that, and having an image of it helps with that. So sort of expanding out from that, all of these different projects have protocols set up for this collection. You know, they're doing different specimen tests, um, different collection methods, looking at different times of day, different you know, transects, things like that. Um, as well as doing sort of when you get to sort of the statistical analytical process, are you throwing out you know really high or low responses or things like that? Uh, sort of more standard statistical practices um, to be able to ensure the highest quality of data. This is the number one question that gets asked about citizen science. Um, how do we? How can we make sure that this stuff is actually reliable and things like that? In the case of Zooniverse, there have been a number of, of studies done. Um, and because of the, the consensus methods and all the ways that are built in, that the error rates are about the same as the expert error rates because of the different ways that have been put in. Plus, it's really hard to manipulate. Robust is a, is a loaded term also in the sense that it implies not only the quality, but also the extent and the, and the, and the amount and the range of data you want to collect. And that's something where citizen science can certainly define on the outset with consultation with the people who will be out collecting the data. Sure, complete the quartet. 
So I was mentioning to Justin before that ours is sort of more of an aspiring citizen science project in that the, the youth were really using the air beams to, as an educational opportunity to see how data is collected. But as we move towards, I think, setting it up to be more robust, I think there's a lot of things we could do. They're never going to be um, highly calibrated like an MDEQ air monitor. But I think um, students might be able to use them to say, here's a hotspot we need to go advocate for an MDEQ monitor. So I think there's different ways, too, that that data can be useful in how important it is, if it's robust or not. Um, but then there are protocol, I think, if we move forward to collecting more data with the youth, that getting them excited about good science and good data collection. Citizen science is kind of a newer thing. Um, my, my time in academia, I found that uh, uh, where citizen science comes in, it's largely monitoring. It's got a lot of people are, can really add to monitoring. Well, monitoring was never a big deal in academia. It's M is equals mundane. That's something that agencies have to do. So uh, there's been a, quite a change now that there seems to be more acceptance to uh, citizen science uh, as uh, in academia, and I'm kind of interested in uh, in in that evolution and how the, how that's happened. I suppose it's different in different fields, but uh, maybe there's some trends here that's kind of, I, I find new, but I don't know that much about. This idea of, of public, so science as a profession has only been around for a couple hundred years, if that. Um, now the sort of aspects of it and the studies and things like that have been going on a lot longer, but this division between sort of professional scientist and not professional scientist is a relatively modern invention. And so, you know, we, there are all these stories of people who were, you know, observing temperature records uh, for 80 years. Or there's a Zooniverse project called Old Weather where you are looking at um, climate or temperature records from old whaling ships in the 19th century. I think a lot of this acceptance is partially, I think, two reasons. One is, um, the, oh, if, I guess I'm like adding reasons in my head as I say this. One is availability of, of data collection tools that are much easier. Um, that goes back to the importance of sort of the robustness and things like that um, that would allow for a community to work on this without this sort of large sensor or these large projects. Um, I think also the scope of challenges is much higher and the, the necessity of data, uh, the necessity of the, sort of the size of the data is so much higher now. Um, I think also sort of the, the sort of crisis of, you know, trust in science, I think is a more recent phenomenon of, you know, this is a way for people to understand how science and scientists actually work and to be able to understand this and be able to show how they can contribute and how they can um, be a part of that. Um, that's something that you know can contribute to this larger acceptance. It's still not, it's still a new thing. It still is not widely accepted. Um, the Citizen Science Association has only been around for maybe ten years. Um, there's still a lot of concern. Um, you know, things that are put much less diplomatic diplomatically than how can we trust the citizen science data, um, and so there's still a lot of work to do. But I think there's a lot of different factors that are influencing. Um, this sort of um, sort of embrace of it in the in the last ten to fifteen years. Yep. You know, in, ad in addition, what citizen science allows us as scientists to do is to learn 
more about our subject as well, because it, there's so much complexity in what we study uh, that people on the ground who are exp you know, often closer to the subjects that we're studying than the actual scientists. So we can get a, a much different perspective from them. A good example is the new, new, you know, relatively new science of agroecology, where local lore is used by scientists to help understand um, better methods for, for crop breeding and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of discussion lately about facts and alternative facts and about the motivation of scientists, the agenda of scientists. And I wondered if you have any instances, any situations you can, you can point to in terms of the benefit to the population when they get involved in, you know, population of people, not, not animals, uh, when the people get involved in citizen science? Well, in, in, my, in working with natural resources, like I do with water, what's really important is that people become, through citizen science, they become what we call stakeholders in the resource. So what we've learned is that in order to rehabilitate damaged urban streams that have been trashed by pollution from industry, is that a lot of these streams were walled off from people. There's private property, there's railroads that run along streams because they you know, tend to be low grade, and people didn't have access to them. But when we gave people access, they began to feel a sense of ownership and connection with the resource. So, you know, again, becoming, a, it's a transition to stakeholder that's important. So I think that's a really important um, component as we think about public science. Um, you'll notice that I say public science and not citizen science, by the way. Um, but there's increasingly the recognition that there should be an additional step incorporated where there is an assessment of what the user is actually getting out of participating. And so there's a number of different protocols and assessment frameworks that people are now incorporating in their public science programs where there's questionnaires, where they're asking about environmental literacy or questions around use of a resource or energy conservation or the apps or ringtones that you have on your phone, all of those things in order to actually see how we're moving the needle with providing the exposure, but in providing and facilitating the integration of people in science. I just add one quick thing to that. Um, we were talking about it at a table over there, sort of the the mutually sort of beneficial, but also distinction between sort of science education and then, you know, citizen community public science, where the public has an active role in contributing to this. Um, I think this is where museums, uh, especially museums, libraries, and other sort of cultural heritage institutions have a really wonderful opportunity um, to be able to, you know, talk about this kind of work and, ex and sort of explore this kind of work. I was, I was at a museum, I was at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto a couple months ago and saw this awesome exhibit on spiders. If you're up there and you're not terrified of spiders, you should totally go. Um, but they had these really great illustrations of like spider mandibles, but they also had a whole section on citizen science. And so here's something that explains how a spider works, you understand a little bit more, but here's a research project that you can do. And so I think it's this sort of 
understanding of how this works um, that sort of demystifies this process. And so even, even if it's not specifically targeted to address alternative facts or things like that, or you know, sort of the, um, the sort of merchants of doubt around climate change and tobacco and things like that, which is an excellent book if you haven't read it, um, to be able to start fostering that sort of understanding and sort of demystifying what this process is about and starting from that point to build upon these. And, and I think with, to Naima's point, to be able to sort of scaffold this in a way so that someone can just click on pictures of deer if they want. But then there's also an opportunity to say, oh, you want to do more? Cool, here's a way for you to do more and to provide these sort of pathways in. I'm going to try to say something uh, brief about that too in terms of, of the museum's role and the way that people come to understand what and come to believe what's true. And in science, right, we make a hypothesis and then we go and we try to confirm it. Um, and if you're doing a citizen science project or a public science project or a community science project in the health, uh, health and human services area, um, and you're part of formulating that hypothesis and gathering that da data and uh, interpreting that data and then providing, you know, coming to a conclusion as a group with a group of other people, it seems to me that it's a lot easier to feel A, invested, but B, trust in the data itself and to understand how new knowledge is generated in science and, and how, so then we begin to say, oh, this is what a scientific fact really is because I've been involved in confirming one. Um, yeah, you want to respond? And then I know there were several hands up here. Can you raise them up? Yeah, I just, I also wanted to add, I think it, we'd be remiss to not mention that there's many other related approaches to research, feminist research. I have to point out Amy Schultz in the room who does, is a leader in community-based participatory research and some of her colleagues here, you know, that have been doing this work for a long time and not trying to unmarry science from action. And I think that there's, you know, a lot of researchers who are comfortable in that space, even though it's a complicated space. And working with community partners, not even about data collection, but to go back to what's our research question and how can it inform policy or programs or action. So a lot of great examples, I think, beyond public science. Yeah, considering the uh, issue of data collection, have you given any thought to the possibility of adding sensors and or analytical devices to be used with your pocket computer? to actually collect the data on site instead of sending samples somewhere? Uh, yes, there's, there's lots. And so some of these are sort of passive sensing where you know, you're collecting um, you know, just uh, like noise pollution or you know, noise levels or things like that. Um, that's useful in like, uh, when you're monitoring trucking to look at noise levels as, an, as a sort of uh, direct or indirect proxy for um, you know, emissions and air pollution. Um, you know, others are looking at, um, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, one of my favorites is this uh, Zooniverse project called uh, Gravity Spy, which is, which is helping to uh, detect gravitational waves. And um, one of the, the funniest bits about this was what the Zooniverse project is basically is looking at um, 
uh, sort of visualizations of different uh, interference mechanisms. And they identified one because someone had their, had their smartphone plugged in too close to the equipment. And they're like, oh, that was really similar. Oh, that's when I had that plugged in. Okay, then that, that noise pattern disappeared. Um, so you know, there were a lot of these sort of apps where you could do that. But also there are things like the Pocket Lab and a number of other things that plug in or connect to your phone that do that as well. So even if you're not using this itself, um, you can find things that will attach to it or connect to it. Hi, I'm Amanda. Thanks, Justin, by the way, for helping me with this presentation I just gave at the Microbiology and Immunology oh, Retreat. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm a natural scientist, but I'm going to ask a social science question because I think it's really important. We've heard different terminology today, citizen science, public science, community science. Um, how, how do you distinguish or where is the field going as far as choosing a name? Um, the connotation with citizen is like a hot button issue right now. If we step down from calling it citizen science, does that then lend more weight to that connotation? Or do we kind of go into a different sphere, officially call everything public science? I have, I have the mic, so I, uh, this is something that I think we all think about a lot in this. Um, I prefer the term community science uh, because it will um, sort of not necessarily sidestep some of the things around citizen science, um, but you can talk about different levels of communities. You can talk about a very local community that's facing a particular environmental justice issue, but you can also talk about a global community helping with these kinds of projects. Um, and so being able to, you know, I think one of the, as, as a lot of sort of citizen science has, and a lot of these projects have come out of the um, sort of conservation collection uh, sort of paradigm, there can be a sort of apoliticalness to it um, that, you know, you're going out and counting birds while the, um, while, you know, the question of conservation is inherently a political act the action itself, you know, you are not directly engaging with sort of the power dynamics and inequality as part of it. And I think this is something that, and that's not just to the citizen science projects, that's part of conceptions of science more generally, that this should be free of politics. It's going back to like the agendas of science, which is always get more money, right? You know, always get more grants. Um, there's million dollar grants that follow you around the world. Um, so I think instead, I try not to get too concerned about the nomenclature as sort of a, an abstract concept, but thinking about the communities you're working with, what are the problems or the issues or the things that they're interested in addressing, um, and being able to really sort of define it with them rather than trying to define it from the outset. I mean, I came up not seeing myself as a citizen scientist or someone who does this work in, um, in other areas and working with communities, but um, working in Dearborn with my Arab American youth, that this is very much an issue that's on their minds. And so we break it down before we go out into the field and talk about what do they want to call it. And um, I don't think we all came to a good conclusion there, but <laughs> um, just, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to ignore that question and we should keep bringing it up. I have a question about vested interests, and that, that's scientists needing grants. Uh, I, will, I had a biology degree. I 
I was a scientist at one time. <laughs> um, let's take an example of the deer population in Ann Arbor. Um, I, re I, re I rest my case. Um, scientists don't agree necessarily. You can get either side. Um, my next door neighbor is, uh, has a vested interest in maintaining her beautiful gardens. I have a vested interest in preserving what I believe is the reason I live where I do is because I enjoy the nature and the deer and the raccoons and, and the water streams. How do we as community or scientists, if you will, screen for those vested interests um, on the agenda? I mean, because you can get both sides and it's, it's, it's prevalent in science in general, in, in critiques of grants and what have you. We don't all agree. So how, how would you solve that issue or can you even do so? Well, I'm not sure if our first aim is around solutions. Um, I think that first, um, having means of communicating and facilitating what those different perspectives are, right? So that can be in the context of open forums, that can be in the context of um, surveys that get sent out to different households, um, gathering that information to understand what those things are, um, because it is complex and it also is multifaceted, right? So you might disagree with the deer framework, but then you might agree with the water framework, right? And so then when you nest all those things together, well, actually you have, you know, maybe a 70% agreement on these different kind of important topics because there's rarely just one, right? So I think the first step is facilitating or aggregating that information to know across these different spectrums or axes or issues that are important for our community. Let's make sure that we can be transparent um, about what those things are. I think that's the first step before we can think about where solutions come in. I've only lived here for three years, so I'm not super familiar. I know it's contentious, but uh, I'm not super familiar with the history of the deer, the deer problem, or uh, not problem, depending on who you talk to. Um, but I think part of it is is developing more sort of scientific literacy. And so when when someone is, and this is just more sort of like data literacy generally, which I think is really useful now. Um, so when someone says, "Oh, 60% of gardens are being eaten by deer." okay, how did you come to that? And so how much of this is sort of an emotional or, um, you know, sort of, you know, an emotional reaction to something like, oh, I really like X, Y, or Z about this, but this happens just in this little bit. And if, you know, to avoid expanding that to like everything, um, how to make sure that, you know, I think going back to what Naima said, that we are transparent about this, while also understanding that there are people, I think I mentioned this over there, like there's a people with a vested interest in the status quo, um, and has a lot of sort of obfuscation and obscurant, obscurantism around keeping things sort of the way they are. And so being able to understand um, how this can work um, and not sort of not automatically trusting what, you know, 
an official statistic says, but also not automatically distrusting it either. Um, because if there wasn't a lot of distrust of the MDEQ, um, the Flint water crisis you know, may not have happened uh, for a much longer time. And so that, that sort of engagement and sort of greater literacy on the part, uh, which I think a lot of you know, science communicators and I think these sort of citizen community science projects can help develop is a really important part to that. Oops. I'm not sure if we could end on a better note than trying to address something that is controversial um, in, in some ways. I know, I know there's more questions, but I, I have to say a couple things here. Um, we could probably go on for at least another half an hour, but uh, Connors has trivia at 8. Um, <laughs> um, I, and I have offered uh, several times to do a science trivia night, and we just haven't got that together because there's a new museum and stuff happening, and there's a lot going on. But what I want to say is thank you, all of you, for coming out and listening and talking and sharing about citizen science. And please thank our speakers. Um, and uh, a couple of things. Nora, who is our, uh, our assistant director for development, is holding up our donation box um, for this month. Um, and we have high hopes for it. So please help feed those hopes. Um, and the other thing is there are these little orange slips on all your tables with um, also orange matching pencils. Um, so we're trying to, trying to tell you something. Please fill these out and give us some good ideas for other topics that we can do science cafes on. And we really do read those. Um, and we really, we really look uh, to do uh, cafes on topics that interest you. Um, our next cafe is in November, I think on the 14th. Thank you, Amy. Uh, and it is on cyanobacteria, formerly known as blue-green algae, and how they, are, they help us in terms of carbon and hurt us in terms of toxic tides. Um, uh, so it's the pros and cons of cyanobacteria. Um, November will be the last science cafe here at Connors. Um, for nearly a year, we're going to take a hiatus while we open our new building. But if you pay very close attention, you may find that we try to do a science cafe in Detroit in the meantime. So um, we're still working on that. So that's all I have to say. Um, please fill out the little evaluations. And I think we have maybe time for one more question. So if you had something you want to say? This is, this is maybe an answer to, to a recent question, that the best science gets done when there are at least two different views. Because as a scientist, you have to be challenged by someone who has a different approach to the problem. Because they come in with one prejudice, you might come in with another prejudice. But you find out pretty quickly if both sides are there or all three sides are there, which is really the truth, what the facts are, and what are not facts. I think that's probably a really good argument for more involvement in the scientific process. Um, lastly, I'll say that we have a small token of appreciation from our lab, so I'm going to ask um, a member of my lab to give you guys some note cards, and you'll see a picture of one of the um, animals, one of the critters that we capture on our critter cams. So thank you for coming, and thank you for your support.